All right, uh, so Jake, I think we are ready to rock and roll. Hello everyone, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. Hey there, I'm Amy Scott, in for Kai Rizdahl today. It's Tuesday, which means it's time for our weekly deep dive into a single topic. And today we're going to do a little personal finance. The Federal Reserve has signaled they will raise rates again, probably by another three quarters of a percentage point. Today's inflation numbers pretty much guarantee that. Uh, so we're going to look at how this affects the average consumer. Yeah. And if you want, we actually want to know what this is going to mean for your personal finances, the downsides, the upsides, and what you can do about it. So here to make us smart on all of this is Lynette Calfani-Cox, a personal finance expert and author of the book Zero Debt, The Ultimate Guide to Financial Freedom. Welcome to the program, Lynette. Hi there. Thank you for having me. It's a great time for this conversation. Lots of folks are concerned about these topics. I know. And I guess I should ask you to sort of set out some some definitions first, because we've been talking a lot on Marketplace and, and lots of news organizations about high inflation. But what we want to talk about here is the high interest rate environment. Can you talk about how those two things are different and how they intertwine? Sure. So um, they are, in fact, related, but for most folks who are going to think about uh, inflation first, let's talk about that. It's really obviously an environment where prices are rising and it can affect everything from the amount of rent or your mortgage you're paying to the healthcare costs you're having to cover, to the food, to the gas that you have to fill up at the pump. Now, on the interest rate front, um, we have, of course, the Federal Reserve, um, which um, sets monetary policy, and they're essentially trying to fight inflation by raising interest rates to cool off prices. So if you look at housing as an indicator, for instance, we saw a raging uh, market um, for housing prices in 2020 and in 2021. But this year in 2022, finally, we've started to see a cool off or a diminishing in terms of prices, finally, on the home front. And part of that happened because the Fed raised interest rates. Well, guess what? When they raise interest rates, it increases the cost of borrowing. It means that that mortgage that you would have gotten last year for like 3% or maybe three and a quarter is now more like 6%. So as the cost of borrowing gets more expensive, of course, you have folks kind of dropping out of the market and with fewer buyers. And in this example, in the home market, again, supply and demand being kind of, you know, what drives prices. If there is less demand, you're going to see um, prices start to come down. So the inflation front on that is, is you know, very much tied a bit to, to, to interest rates as well. So that's a great example of how in some ways uh, higher interest rates can have a positive effect because we've been seeing these runaway home prices um, as interest rates go up and demand falls. Maybe some people who've been just struggling to get in the market have a, have a chance uh, but it also makes buying a home less affordable because those monthly mortgage payments go up. How do you 
advise people who are, you know, have been waiting for that moment to get into the housing market um, on, you know, how to approach these interest rates? Well, it's certainly a tricky situation because it not only impacts the would-be home buyer, the person who wants to make the leap from renting to owning, but it also affects current homeowners who want to either refinance or potentially trade up uh, and buy mm-hmm. a, a bigger or a second home or something different. So um, all of those folks are impacted. And my advice would essentially be um, twofold. One, they're not going to like to hear, I'm sure. <laughs> um, but the first part <laughs> is to is to recognize that, yes, even if you have to get a five and a half or six percent interest rate, believe it or not, on a historical basis, rates are still actually quite low. And what I'm telling people is that if you're thinking about buying right now, I would still encourage those who are credit worthy, who've saved up, who have an appropriate DTI or debt to income ratio, as well as those, of course, who have the desire and the financial capacity to buy. I would still encourage them to consider home ownership um, because I think it is a long term way to build wealth. And in America, as a matter of fact, housing wealth comprises about 60% of people's net worth. So to hmm. me, it still remains a, a viable and a desirable um, pursuit. So let's talk about everybody else, because to be honest, with housing prices still what they are relatively high and interest rates being higher and growing, buying a house is still out of reach for a lot of people. And there's a whole generation of folks who've never really lived in even an environment of interest rates, you know, above the low single digits, much less double digits. And so I get that historically we're not in a really high interest rate environment. We're not in the double digits of, you know, the 70s or the 80s. But we're certainly at a higher interest rate environment than most people, especially younger people, are used to. How do people need to think, especially those who are renting and do have debt and are maybe struggling financially, how should they think about this higher interest rate environment compared to the way we've been living the last decade or so? Well, I think you really do have to reassess your relationship with credit because a lot of us, if we're honest, have leaned on borrowing to excessive levels. And that's particularly true with credit card debt. And again, no judgment, no blame, no shame. I'm a girl who was, you know, $100,000 in credit card debt. Uh, and then, you know, you, you mentioned uh, my book, Zero Debt. I round, wound up writing a, a New York Times bestseller about how I got out of that credit card debt. But my point is, when you're talking about fighting higher interest rates, one of the best things that people can do is to focus on consumer debts that are like credit card obligations. So um, right now, the average credit card interest rate is about 17.5%. And the expectations are that by the end of 2022, they're going to climb to a record high of about 19%. So if Ouch. you can focus on, I know, I know, it's not pretty at all. Um, but certainly, if you can start paying down those credit cards to the best of your ability, you're going to be able to save yourself in unnecessary finance charges and extra interest that's being paid. 
And so how do you do that? Well, it's everything from talking to your creditors and negotiating, believe it or not, three out of four customers who pick up the phone and ask their credit card company for a lower rate actually do get it. So that's one option. You can try a balance transfer um, where you essentially get what's called a teaser rate. You transfer the credit obligations that you have on one credit card to another one to say a 0% credit card deal for 12 to 18 months or so, and that'll save you on interest and finance charges. And by the way, while you're paying that obligation off, all of your money is going towards the principal balance instead of the interest. So you're able to more quickly knock out that credit card debt. I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but just can you give the normal caveat and warnings about balance transfers there? <laughs> sure. So, so, so two things. One is there is typically a fee associated with that. Usually it's about 3%, but it could be anywhere from low of 2% to as much as 5% of the amount that you transfer. Um, and it, you know, it is worth it to get one that's 12 months or more. However, you should be aware, depending on the type of agreement that you have structured with the credit card issuer, if you don't pay the um, balance off during that time, the interest can accrue and it can all come due. So you absolutely want to be knocking out the balances along the way um, and you want to read the, the fine print in terms of that credit card agreement. But those are the two big um, sort of uh, drawbacks, as it were, if you are in fact going to do a, a balance transfer. One of the questions we get from listeners is, why haven't higher interest rates translated to higher savings rates? I mean, that's usually the upside of higher interest rates, right? What's your answer to that? <laughs> yes. One reason that higher interest rates haven't translated into higher savings rates is simply how the financial system works when you put your money on deposit with a financial institution. So let's not forget banks... Um, lenders, et cetera, they're in business to make money. And they do that primarily by loaning money um, at a profit. So there's never a one-to-one -one correlation. Um, another factor is how interest rates work relative to different um, financial instruments and different loan types. So sometimes people think about, well, geez, you know, rates were increased and I have a 30-year um, mortgage, and how come my mortgage isn't more closely tied to to what's happening with, say, you know, you know, thirty year fixed income securities? Well, it's because people tend to sell or refinance their homes about every seven years or so. So mortgage mm -hmm. rates tend to be more closely tied to ten year treasuries. So, um, in a nutshell, um, not only is there um, the bank factor about making profit, but there's competition from other uh, players. Certainly, banks are not the only game in town. Credit unions, fintech firms, um, digital banks that have emerged. And so what most people are finding is that um, you have to obviously do your homework, do some comparison shopping. Rates are still low for savers, unfortunately. But I do expect that trend to, to change a little bit. And I do expect uh, savings rates to tick upward again, as we have increased competition 
and as rates themselves as a whole continue to rise. You know, following up on that savings bit, uh, one of the reasons I was interested in having this conversation was because I was talking with a girlfriend about how when we were kids, we used to save in certificates of deposit, which haven't been useful for people due to the low interest rate environment for a long time. What are sort of some of the bonuses and and pluses of existing in a high interest rate environment? I get that it sucks for credit cards and mortgage rates, but are there benefits that people should be thinking about and paying attention to utilizing in this space as we sort of adapt to mildly higher interest rates? (laughs) Well, certainly, um, you know, interest works both ways. You were mentioning, um, Kimberly, your the idea of how um, when you were growing up, the, the CDs, you know, one of the strategies that a lot of folks use as well is what's called laddered CDs. So, mm-hmm. of course, you can, um, some people do this with bonds as well, but the idea and the concept is, um, you don't want to pull money out of a CD before the uh, maturity date or before the, the term that you're supposed to keep it in there. You don't want to have any penalties or anything of that nature. But you might um, ladder it, meaning you might have specific periods of time in which you're willing to tie up your money. So one CD might only be for 12 months and the next one might be for two years or 24 months, and the next for 36 months. And so that's kind of the concept of laddering. And so you would have access to it, um, not all at the end of, say, a 36-month or a three-year term, but um, progressively um, at specific intervals. Well, Lynette, it's been really interesting to talk to you. I'm sure you've answered a lot of folks' questions and probably raised some new ones, so we'll keep the conversation going. Lynette Kalfani-Cox is a personal finance expert and author of the book Zero Debt, The Ultimate Guide to Financial Freedom. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Sure thing. My pleasure. Wow. That was, uh, it's like kind of a blast from the past of of what actually works when there are for real interest rates, you know, and (laughs) of course, I'm going to give the Kai and and Marketplace General disclaimer of consult your own financial advisor and make sure you do research on whatever options are, are best for you. Like, but you know, it's, it's so fascinating how delayed the interest rates are on, you know, bank savings compared to Mm -hmm. where interest rates are in credit cards or in loans. There's such a huge gap there. And I think that like, you know, it's it's just a different environment that many of us are not accustomed to operating in. And, you know, there's sure the segment of, of the economy that's like out there trying to decide if we can buy a house. But a lot of us are just like, oh, my gosh, how are we going to function? <laughs> yeah. What do I even do? <laughs> and it's interesting. I was uh, talking to a, a realtor not long ago in Miami who started her career in the early 2000s in uh, mm-hmm. mortgage finance. And she reminded me that the first time rates fell below 6%, you know, mm-hmm. people were going nuts. And, re- you know, there's a huge yeah. refinancing boom. You know, now 6% seems really high to folks. But, you know, in the not too distant past, that was. Um, considered quite low. So I think it's good to, to remember, maybe talk to your elders <laughs> about how they managed uh, when yeah. interest rates were much higher than that. 
although everything was much cheaper, and I'll shout out, uh, Janet Wynn did an amazing piece on the Marketplace website looking at the actual inflation-adjusted cost difference between stuff uh, for our, air quote, elders uh, versus what we pay now. And so, yes, interest rates were significantly higher, but stuff But you in could get a house for $30,000. <laughs> inflation adjusted, you know? Right. So yeah, exactly. it's, it's all context. Anyway, let us know what you think. Uh, did any of this ring true for you? How are you and your family sort of navigating this higher interest rate environment? I'm going to start saying higher interest rate instead of high interest rate because context is key here. This higher interest rate environment our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART, or you can send us a voice memo at makemesmart at marketplace.org, and we will be right back. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine... I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Talking to your backseat babies about money can be so hard. In fact, you probably don't even know where to start. So that's where the newest version of the Million Bazillion Academy steps in, our email newsletter course. You can start whenever and you'll get a new lesson each week that you and your kids can complete at your own pace. They'll learn about crypto, the stock market, and so much more. And best of all, it's free. Million Bazillion Academy, making kids smarter about money. Sign up today at marketplace.org slash academy. Okay, welcome back. And now it is time for the news fix. I will uh, go first just because mine is very much tied into what Lynette was just talking about, which is the inflation numbers that were out today, which were higher than anticipated, um, but mm -hmm. still slower, you know, uh, slower than they have been. So uh, I'm just going to read the headline from the AP, lower gas costs slowed U.S. inflation for the second straight month in August, but other prices across the economy kept rising evidence that inflation remains a heavy burden for American households. So yes, gas prices went down and that did a lot for the sort of headline inflation number to make it a little bit less scary looking. But other things that we buy and use every day are still expensive, Ugh comparatively more expensive than they used to be and continuing to get more expensive. Uh, consumer prices are up 8.3% compared to where they were a year ago. So, you know, just, you know, be careful out there in this economy, you know, take a second look at those uh, spending decisions and then just make sure you're taking care of you and yours. That's all I got. <laughs> yeah. And it's another sign that, uh, you know, core inflation, which is what we 
really worry about everything that's that's not food and, and energy, which can be volatile, is still going up. So the Fed has more reason to keep tightening and back to more of those higher interest rates we were talking about. Yes. Although, so I do have some good news. Oh, go ahead, Kimberly. Go ahead. Yeah, I just like I understand why we strip out food and energy prices because they're volatile and they can really skew the numbers. But those are like often the expenses that are the hardest for people to cut from their budgets, you know. So it's it's fine to sort of take out because they go all over the place. But you're buying, you know, gas and, and food regardless of whether or not they're volatile. Yeah, and food, and even though gas so, prices have come down, food prices have continued to rise. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it's all it all matters. But if you're looking at underlying trends, it's, you know, the headline number um, may look better, but but overall inflation is still going up. So I wanted to share some good news along those lines, um, which is, yeah, which is that poverty is down. Um, the Census Bureau is out with its uh, update on poverty for last year. And there are two measures. There's the traditional official measure of poverty, which is actually basically unchanged from 2020 at 11.6%. Um, that's not the good news. The good news is that the supplemental poverty measure, which is considered a more realistic snapshot of, of actual poverty, um, because it takes into account government support like SNAP and housing assistance and the child tax credit, um, also things like medical expenses, and it accounts for geographic variations. That measure was down significantly last year. So the supplemental poverty rate, as they call it, was 7.8%, which is a decrease of 1.4 percentage points from the year before. It's the lowest since census started tracking this measure in 2011. And the child poverty, the supplemental poverty rate, fell 46% last year. Um, and that's the lowest of on record. So that is a, a really good data point. It's, of course, a reflection partly of the stronger economy and low unemployment, but also of the expanded government aid during the pandemic, much of which has since expired. Um, yeah, I mentioned the expanded sort of... child tax credit, unemployment insurance, that... COVID stimulus, all of that stuff helped lift families and especially children out of poverty. Yeah, I was actually surprised when you said like there was a bit of good news, which is like, it's great that that was the case in 2021. But given how many of these programs have expired, I wonder what 2022 poverty rates are going to look like. Because, you know, the people who look at this stuff have made a direct link between these emergency programs, the extra school lunch programs, the extra SNAP funding and all this, the government stimulus and, you know, student loan forbearance and, and mortgage forbearance and all this other stuff that directly contributed to a reduction in poverty. But a lot of these programs have either expired or are about to. And I just wonder what that's going to mean for, you know, poverty rates moving forward, because we have well, all of these systems that demonstrated that they work and we've allowed them to expire. Yes, and I think that is a, a big concern and um, an excellent point. 
However, comma, as Kai says, <laughs> um, the child poverty has been declining for decades now. The New York Times had a mm-hmm. big uh, spread this weekend about how child poverty rates have been falling since the early 90s significantly and because of expanded programs. Um, and also, I think, you know, a year of fewer poor people is just a good thing. And we yes. have to figure out how to sustain this. Um going going forward. And I also want to mention that there's a big caveat, which is that poverty actually increased last year for older people, people 65 and older. Um, that likely reflects the toll that inflation has taken on people with fixed incomes and the failure of Social Security benefits to keep up. And of course, you know, a lot of people believe that all that fiscal stimulus is part of what has driven inflation, though, as you well know, it's subject of much debate how much of a role that played. But it's a complicated picture. um, But it's nice to be able to say something like, wow, poverty fell last year. Something good happened. I'll take it. Me too. All right. That's it for the news fix. Let's do the mailbag. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. Okay, last week on the deep dive, we talked about artificial intelligence, and then we got this from Gabe. Hey, y'all. My name is Gabe. I live in Tempe, Arizona, and I work for a local French fry company who uses... AI technology at our farms in Idaho. Um, And we use that to help sort our potatoes and make sure that everything is high quality. There's still a healthy mix of human interaction in the processing of our products, but it's going more and more towards AI to help us make the best quality product and keep some of our costs down. Thanks. That's so cool because, I mean... There's a job that was probably mind-numbingly dull for somebody to sort, like, the good potatoes from the bad potatoes, and now a computer does it. So, yeah, let's – I love it. I love it. I didn't fries, know French though? fry companies were local. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right, before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question, which is, what is something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? Hi, I'm Kieran Setia. I teach philosophy at MIT, and I'm the author of a new book, Life is Hard, How Philosophy Can Help Us Find Our Way. When someone came to me with a problem in life, a blow-up at work or in a close relationship, a health scare that had them rattled, a moral dilemma, I used to think, My job was to offer reassurance or advice. It will all be fine. Here's what to do. As a philosopher and a friend, I ought to be a source of guidance. What I've learned from bitter experience is that assurance and advice can operate as denial, a failure to acknowledge what someone's going through. More often than not, finding the right words to say what's really happening is the greater part of knowing what to do. Hmm... That's some wisdom right there. Hope my spouse is listening. (laughs) And I mean, just ask anyone who's ever gone through like a significant moment of grieving. The worst thing somebody can say to you is like, it'll all be okay. You'll eventually feel better. And it's like, how about you just acknowledge that this sucks? (laughs) You know? Yeah. And yeah, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. 
Thank you for that. Uh, you can send yeah. us your answers to the Make Me Smart question via voice memo to our email at makemesmart at marketplace.org or leave us a message, 508-827-6278, also known as 508-UB-SMART. Make Me Smart is directed and produced by Marissa Cabrera. Our intern is Olivia Zhao. Ellen Rolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry with mixing down later on by Ming-Shin Quigon. And Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. The senior producer is Bridget Bodner. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Francesca Levy is the executive director of Digital. And Marketplace's vice president and general manager is Neil Scarborough. Hmm. Hmm. We all want to be our best selves, but it can be an expensive journey. From experimenting with alternative medicine... I was working with a natural, holistic nutritionist and never really thought about the cost. To splurging on fast fashion. I'm spending like all my tips. I was definitely spending like $200 a week. I'm Rima Hreis, host of Marketplace's This Is Uncomfortable. This season, we explore the cost of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts.